You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan, and I've got a full house of co-hosts here. We've got Stephanie Seymour. Hi, everybody. We've got Rob Levy. Hey. And we've got Anthony Williams. How do you do? And guess what? We have an incredibly special guest with us this week. Our guest is one of the most prolific musicians in the industry today. He's well known for his work with King Crimson, Peter Gabriel, John Lennon and Yoko Ono, David Bowie, Pink Floyd, Alice Cooper, Carly Simon, Chuck Mangione, Andy Summers, Herbie Mann, and probably about 4,500 other artists. And we can't name them all because we actually have to do a show. Plus his work as a solo artist and as a member of Stickmen and Liquid Tension Experiment and other projects like Bazio Levin Stevens, Bruford Levin Upper Extremities, and so many more. And on top of that, he's also an accomplished photographer as well. Everybody, please welcome the legendary Tony Levin. Yay! Hey, hi. Thank you. Golly, I'm exhausted from hearing all that, but I'll, <laughs> right. have, some, I'll have some coffee and I'll bounce back. <laughs> that sounds great. Okay, so let's just jump right into some of the newest stuff on your plate, because this this is all stuff that's pretty much been big news recently. Um, we want to start off by talking about uh, you just finished a new Peter Gabriel album and you're about to embark on a brand new Peter Gabriel tour. What can you tell us about that? Um, is there much that you can say at all about the new album? We've heard three singles so far, but that's it. Yeah. Is there much more you can tell us? A few weeks ago, I wouldn't have been able to tell you very much at all, but thank goodness the tracks are starting to come out. I believe, yeah. if I'm correct, he's releasing one per month on every full moon on uh, on youtube if nowhere else probably other places too and i'm thrilled about that uh, of course having recorded on the album i have access to all of the songs and and i can assure the fans i'm speaking as a band member but i'm a fan too of course of peter yeah. and all these years without an album so i'm thrilled that the, the 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 material is great his voice is great the writing is great the lyrics are great Bass playing could could be better. <laughs> I don't see how that's than, possible. <laughs> but other than that, it, it, no, it, it's really great. And and so I'm thrilled that it's coming out. I'm thrilled that the other fans are going to be – the first three pieces that are out are great. But there's a lot more coming. There are a lot of tracks. I don't actually know how many are new, but, but way more than 10. And, uh, wow. uh, yeah, I'm thrilled for all of us for hearing these things. And simultaneously, uh, yeah, we're working pretty hard – we, the musicians who are going to be on tour, we're working pretty hard to learn these new material 
Mm-hmm. And to, to, in my case, to cover which bass that I play on that, because it's, uh, I have to hear a special mix to tell and to be sure I have the right instruments and to, to memorize it and to be ready to, to do this, which, what promises to be a very special tour. Wish I could tell you all about the tour. But the tour dates have been released, thank goodness. Yes. Finally. And, and uh, uh, I don't know what the stage show will be like, but I think it will be pretty special. I'm we sure just, it will be. Yeah, I I was just <laughs> listening to uh, playing for time to, again today because I've actually had that on auto repeat over and over because it's just <laughs> such a fantastic song. And you're right, his voice is fantastic. His it's just wonderful. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah, all I'm, the songs are, but they. Are, I should have beautiful. it on repeat. I should have it on repeat because <laughs> I'm the one who has to learn the. the, the <laughs> that piece is not hard. It's just that there are a lot of them, and and it isn't hard. It's it's a a labor of joy to 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 memorize these pieces and. I have plenty of time before the first, I think the first concert is uh, mid-late May in uh, Krakow mm. in Poland. Right. So, so Tony, <clears throat> if I may, I, ha- I have a question about the recording process for this. Sure. Because, you know, Peter is is notorious for taking a really long time for this to come together. I know IO has been in production for the best part of 20 years at this point. <laughs> Are you, were you involved in that, for, you know, on and off for the full 20 years or do you get brought in relatively late into the process how, how involved are you kind of in the creative process there uh good question this this one i got brought in late in the process i tend to forget through the years i've done a lot of sessions with peter and i didn't keep track on which songs came out so it's possible i played on early versions of some of these pieces quite a while ago frankly i don't have the kind of mind that that categorizes things that way so i don't remember but I, I have been, I, I, I think I played on most of them last September. And uh, then, have I lost a year? A year ago, September. I, yeah, I skipped a year there. <laughs> and then we came back uh, uh, last July and did more and or, or, or tweaked things and redid a few. So I've had a few visits, uh, revisits. Uh, but in my experience, this has gone quicker than most Peter Gabriel records. And when I was in uh, Peter... This was different. He had most of the, even from a couple of years ago, he had most of the track done and on tape. And so Manu Kache, the drummer, and David mm-hmm. Rhodes and I uh, were playing along to really a finished track. It had the tempo, it had the chords, it had a scratch vocal that was quite good. It had keyboards. Uh, so that's pretty different than being in the early days of the piece where Peter's got an idea, but he's not sure where it's going to go. And uh, it did lend it to going quicker. But still, Peter is Peter, <laughs> and uh, and and he is. Uh, I probably it would take me a couple hours to to describe the way he is in the studio. But he's a little different than most people in that he's very open. He's just naturally open to different ideas. So you don't spend your time honing in and moving towards the the goal that he has somewhere in the back of his musical mind you don't do that you go in all kinds of directions or he's happy to go in all kinds of directions and spend as much time as it might take and see where it goes and only through the years of working on the piece will it eventually find its place is it the right place or is it just the place it was at when the album came out i don't know but but he's uh the most uh of all the musicians i've worked with the most comfortable with uh, what you call working outside the box and that is that has an influence, frankly, on us, the musicians, because we know we don't have to come in and do the normally expected thing. We can, uh, you know, way back in the many, many 
decades ago uh, when I brought the Chapman stick instead of a bass into a session. Uh, it was the kind of thing that Peter not only embraced and liked, but he, he looked at the thing and he said something like, well, could you, by the way, it's a finger tapping instrument as, as opposed to a plucking instrument for those who don't know. And he said to me something like, well, could you play it with thimbles on your fingers? And, and I thought, well, it's, it's odd enough as it is. And, and to tell you the truth, to this day, I still haven't tried putting thimbles on my fingers. <laughs> I have trouble even saying it. It's a tongue twister. I want a picture of that when that happens. Yeah, yeah. It could, it, I'm not ready for it. But Peter was ready right out of the box. Yeah. Oh, that's good. What about thimbles? Nice. Very that's cool. a great like open way to be, you know, just because mm -hmm. it gives the musicians sort of free reign to experiment and do things. Yes. And when you think about the range of his music through the years, mm -hmm. huge, a huge range. And, and you start to see why, when you realize he's that kind of person, he's just open. He doesn't have a style that it's going to be, uh, uh, you know, he's different than most artists I've worked with in that sense. And Tony, if you can, um, really just forgive me for a second here, just, this is where I need to fanboy because <laughs> I discovered those Peter Gabriel albums when I was about 16 and they were really what, drove me to pick up a bass guitar myself so your playing was hugely hugely influential to my own musical development um so i'm very very excited for the new album because of that and to hear more tony levin on a peter gabriel album well you're very kind thank you i was going to say i'm sorry forgive me but <laughs> uh, but anyway I, i'm not quite gutsy enough to pick up a chapman stick i've, oh, I've always been very impressed by them but whew, that looks hard He's been practicing wearing thimbles, but he hasn't quite got to the <laughs> yeah. Chapman stick yet. You could just start with the bass with the thimbles. That'll do. And if you get that together, give me a call. Let me know what it's like. Tony, when you were talking about being in the studio and uh, how open he is to sort of new things, he mentioned this week that he was open to using AI for making music. And I'm just wondering mm. what your thoughts are on that. Uh, well, I don't have any thoughts on that. So, so uh, I'll have to listen to what Peter said and see if I agree. But I had not thought about that, and uh, don't know. I'll, I'll I'll investigate it after our talk. Okay. And well, then you can I'll come back later, yeah. or you yeah. can record this at Anthony's house, and then you know. <laughs> well, there's probably an AI somewhere that can can simulate my part on Peter's album, and uh, and I'll have to hear it and see how it is, see how I like it. Peter has always been someone who has embraced new technologies and always wants to kind of push the recording process further. So I could definitely see him investigating at least an AI approach to this sort of thing, just to see what would happen with it, how it would turn yeah, out. Yeah, but through it all, he has a very, what I would call a very analog sense, sensibility about yeah. music. So you never hear that record and think, oh, this is all electronic. You just, this right. is, uh, you know, very, very humanistic, very, uh, uh, well, we call it analog. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering about the upcoming tour. Can you tell us what the prep has been thus far? Has, has Peter come up with a set list or <laughs> is it still being like, it's like 45 songs and it's still being whittled down a little bit? It is, it is being whittled down okay. <laughs> as we speak. I hope I've, I have the whole list of everything we've done in the past or almost everything and everything that's new. And it, you know, that would be a wonderful 30 hour show. Right. I hope we do it, but I doubt if that, if that'll happen. Uh, I'm joking about it, but uh, I expect in the coming weeks 
to to uh, have a honed down uh, extra long set list that will further hone down when we rehearse. Mm-hmm. However, my my history with Peter has been that these decisions are made pretty late in the day. So I'm preparing to, to learn it all and, and come in and see what happens. And right. also, r- realistically, if there's a big production, you, we musicians think about the music and, and who's going to be in the band, how many players, and how are we going to do that. Mm-hmm. But, but if it's a big production, the production uh, has its own needs, and that determines, to some extent, which pieces get played and how long they can be and things like that. It's not right. the only thing that influences it. But uh, if that's the case, then it won't be until really a few weeks before the first show that we really know what works and what doesn't work. I could, I, I, I'm going to refrain from telling stories all night and not mm-hmm. covering questions. But, but there was a, a, a time. Um, maybe I, I don't keep the names of the tours too straight, but maybe it was Secret World. We were rehearsing, and and just rehearsing music, and we were on a break in the dining room, and I saw this round, looked like a stage, but small, maybe a two feet in circumference and uh, 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 sorry, two, one foot in radius. Uh, and it was on the floor in the corner of the, of the dining room. And I asked Peter, said, well, what's that? He said, oh, that's the heaven stage. I said, what's that mean? And we said, well, it's going to be above us. And maybe we will come in with that hanging from a helicopter and, and it will just lower us down onto the other stage. And I, I was speechless. Of course, I, I, I thought that's interesting. I, I can see some problems maybe with that. Uh, and, 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 and then he said, okay, or we might all hang upside down and play upside down. And I thought, in those who saw the show know that in the end, Peter did, and his daughter Melanie did, were upside down and walking around their circle. Mm-hmm. But it was a fixed stage. And the plan in the beginning, well, they, somebody gave up on the helicopter idea. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> and, uh, but the band was going to be in that, and it was going to rise up way up to the top of the, uh, near the ceiling of the, of the arena. And we indeed rehearsed that. But what happened was then the, that song ended, and for the stage to, sl- to come down and for us to start the next song took about three minutes of dead time when nothing could happen. And so for that reason, the, the, the production said, okay, we can't do that. And we can't do that piece and we can't do it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a, a kind of an amusing example to me of how, how things change drastically and how the production might influence uh, uh, what pieces work on stage and which don't. Right. Let's go back to the beginning and talk about how you first met Peter Gabriel and how that musical relationship has developed over the decades. Well, yeah, lucky day for me it was July '76, and you're going to start thinking I have a good memory, but I don't. But that, <laughs> but that one has come to mind a lot of times because the same day I met Peter and I met Robert Fripp. Oh, and amazingly, after all these years since '76, I am still making music with both of them and still yeah. good friends with them. And and so glad I didn't miss that session, boy. boy. <laughs> so the producer Bob Ezrin had used me on a number of albums, notably uh, Lou Reed's and and a few Alice Cooper albums. And he thought I would be appropriate for this young fella who uh, had just left the band Genesis. I didn't know the band Genesis. I didn't know the band King Crimson either, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went up to to Toronto to do this session, and and the I. I, I guess people who are, who know their music would understand what I walked into. I was hearing different kind of music than I had heard before. And Peter's not just creative, but he really writes wrote in a particular style after Genesis that was really unusual and it was great. And then Robert Fripp's guitar playing was very unusual. So how was it? It was great. It was inspiring and and uh, uh, challenging to pl- to find bass parts for that. Still is. 
and and I enjoyed that part of it. And uh, Peter and I became good, pretty good friends during the making of that album, which took, I'm guessing, a few weeks. And uh, then when he asked me to go on tour with him, a brief tour to, to promote that album, I was thrilled to leave New York City where I was kind of established uh, doing studio records, some of which were really good and some weren't. Were, it's more of a craft than an art, I think, doing studio playing. And and so I was thrilled at the chance to to do what I really love and to go out and play live and to play some unusual challenging music also yeah a couple was it a couple of years later at some point robert uh fripp he, he was on that first tour by the way playing guitar mm-hmm. although he didn't let peter introduce him by name uh that was <laughs> peter introduced him i think as dusty Rhodes on the guitar i don't know i don't know why that was uh and then robert asked me to play on his solo album which was called exposure and uh that was great that was a fun album it, it was somewhat crimsony crimson-like album mm. and then later when i had the chance to join king crimson it was sort of a genre i had been introduced to uh, through robert and so it was uh, exciting and, and it, of course it had a big influence on my career do you, do you, you played the, the chapman stick and not many people do i guess you're one of the i think innovators of this whole instrument um and you just came off a tour with your band stick men which was uh mostly South American and West Coast states. Are, are you going to be doing any East Coast states? Uh, good question. Stickman, uh, we do what we do everything eventually. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, uh, the, our touring has to work around formerly King Crimson tours, which Pat, Pat Mastelotto was the drummer in the band. Yeah. There's only three of us. But with me and Pat busy with King Crimson and now with me busy with Peter Gabriel, uh, Stickman can fill in the gaps and we will. We will mm-hmm. tour. Uh, well, we'll tour next as soon as Peter finishes, which is next November, I think I'll have a week or 10 days at home and then go out with Sickman, but that's going to be Europe. When we'll tour the East Coast, I really don't know. I suspect it'll be, gosh, I hate thinking way in the, in the future, but I think it will be spring of 2024 before we do that. And, and let me say about about the stick and about Stickman, uh, the, the Chapman stick invented by Emma Chapman uh, and played wonderfully by him. Uh, it was something I, I wasn't the first to play it, but I j- kind of jumped on it early in that same year, 1976. And then because, uh, well, I did, I didn't play it on Peter's first album, but I played it on King Crimson, the first album I did with King Crimson uh, uh, Discipline in 81. And because one of the pieces, Elephant Talk, started with a stick riff, uh, because of that, uh, quite a few people who were to become stick players heard that riff and thought, oh, that's the stick. And then when they got the instrument, they found out that it's it's kind of an easy riff. I kind of <laughs> cheated and tuned it just to make it an easy riff, as I am <laughs> wont to do. Uh, uh, and so they picked up the stick. So there is a, a sizable community of wonderful stick players, many of whom have way more technique than I do. I just kind of, well, I've been playing it a long time, but I... I base my stick playing on the bass part and and i play a bit on the on the top guitar strings it has a lot of strings uh but there are players who who technically amaze me and uh, the wonderful th- one of the wonderful things about the instrument is it because it's a new instrument it has a lot of uh capability and there isn't one particular technique of playing it so when you hear players you hear them doing things that you never often you hear them do things you never thought of and you think well why don't i try that and so in a way we in the stick community are all 
cross-pollinating and inspiring each other to try different techniques that, that maybe one person discovered and nobody else knew about it. So that's one of the wonderful things about it. For me, what attracted me to it was that the, the bass sound is, is valid. It's a really good bass sound, but it's really distinctive and really different than all my other basses. And not in a good or a bad way, just different. And at the time, because I was playing in King Crimson and with Peter Gabriel and looking for quote-unquote progressive approach to bass playing and bass sounds, I thought that the unusual sound and the unusual tuning would help uh, uh, inspire me to come up with unusual parts <laughs> that work of, on the instrument. Yeah, I wanted to know how you decided which, you know, if you were going to use a bass on one song or the stick or how, how does that process kind of play out? I mean, I guess it depends on the band. Is this the song? Everything, right? Yeah, good very good question. To me, it depends on the song or, or the piece, the composition. And and I don't really know. I don't think I think. <laughs> That's an interesting sentence right there. <laughs> I, when, when I, I'll walk into whatever the band is or, or Peter or Stickman or whatever. And I hear this piece of music that someone else wrote. And then somewhere in my musical sense, I get a feeling, not as an idea, but, but a feeling of, of what kind of bass part might work with that to help that piece of music. I kind of become a fan of that piece of music. And then uh, if if I'm hearing a thing that is going to work on the stick, then that's great. But it, I also have a, a, a number of basses that sound pretty pretty different than each other. Uh, or, or maybe I'll hear, well, well, gee, it'd be great if it was a big, I'm just making these words up, but it was a big fat sound, but it had a, a huge attack like a drumstick. So then maybe I'll pick up a drumstick and, and hit the, that fat string with it or something or you know on a good day and if there's enough time to experiment i might try a new sound or a little subtle variation on another sound so that that's to me that's determined clearly determined by the music not by any idea i had about what the band would be like or anything i'm practicing i'm i am often practicing riffs and things but i don't apply them to the next music i hear i just kind of put them in a back pocket and and hope to have them when it might be appropriate on that note, I was, uh, I think that you only did one ever contribution to an Indigo Girls record, and you played Stick on one song on, I think it was Swampophilia. And I always assumed that they had called you up because they wanted that sound. They wanted the, the Tony Levin Chapman Stick on that song. Is that the case? Or did you just come in and say, you know what, I think this is appropriate for this song? Um, how about this third possibility? I don't oh. remember. Oh, well, okay. There's that. <laughs> I just don't remember at all how okay. that came about. I'm sorry. I was going to ask the same right. question about Berlin, so that's okay. <laughs> there you go. I, I have a somewhat follow-on question. So you might not have invented the Chapman stick, but you're one of the innovators. I wanted to talk about something you did invent, namely the funk fingers. How did you come up with the concept for those? And it, do, do you have a patent on it? Is that the kind of situation with them? Or is it something that anyone can kind of put out there now? I'll well? tell you. Thank you for that question. Uh, we were recording the So album with Peter Gabriel. And, and I had the idea of asking Jerry Murata, the drummer, to play with his drumsticks on my bass strings. That wasn't a completely innovative idea because when i was a kid there was a, a a song called big noise from winnetco that had that had that 
that technique in a kind of jazz piece. But anyway, I wasn't thinking about that. I just thought, oh, that'd be good on on the piece big time. And he did that. And uh, some of that got on the album. Uh, some of it was replaced by Peter playing synth bass in the, on the piece. And Peter and I have had a wonderful um, <laughs> passive aggressive uh, uh, competition between us through the years, ever, all through the years when I want to play that part. And he wants me to play the bass synth part that he did. And, and we worked that out in every concert, one way or the other. Anyway, uh, a year, fast forward a year when we're uh, touring. And I was practicing at soundcheck as I often do. And I, I had one drumstick in my hand and I was practicing trying to simulate that part, which wasn't easy because he had had two drumsticks in his hand. And Peter walking by me, bless him. Peter said, he looked at it and he said, why don't you take two drumsticks and attach them to your fingers? He said that. And I, knowing my limitations, I turned around to Andy Moore, my bass tech at the time. And I said, Andy, can we do that? And I was joking, using the word we. What I really meant is, can you chop those drumsticks and figure out a way to put them on my fingers? And, and Andy did that. So it was Peter's idea. It was Andy making them or cutting them down. And we tried it. We tried a lot of things. If they were wound too tight around my fingers, my fingers would turn purple. If they were too loose, they would go flying into the audience. If it was too thick a drumstick, it would break the bass string. And if it was too thin a stick, it didn't bounce in a way that you could use it. it, just, it anyway, eventually, it all turned out right. I named them Funk Fingers. I, I will take full credit for that part. And uh, for a long time, I made, no, for a short time, I made them myself at home. And then uh, many years later, I, I got a wonderful uh, a guy Kevin Andrews to to make them and and he sold them. I, I I'm not sure he still sells them. I think he doesn't, but he sold them online for a while. And 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 I think the idea of of manufacturing them and selling them was just some bass player is gonna one guy or one girl is gonna find this and 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 really have fun with it and do something I would never have thought of. So that was the only it, they were they were sold in a modest way and priced in a modest way and uh, good fun. And I have used them since then on a few. Well, quite a few songs, mostly with Peter, but with other artists, too. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw them, um, it, it was on a very, very grainy YouTube video of Peter and, and the band playing I Grieve on, I think, the Larry King show. Wow. And it, it cut to you and I was squinting like, his fingers <laughs> look abnormally long. What is that? I, I You know <laughs> what? so it, grainy. <laughs> I, I have noticed through the years, people look, some people looking at me after a show, looking at my fingers. <laughs> and I know that's exactly what's going through on through their head. They look so long from a distance because these things are maybe four inches uh, uh, reaching beyond only the two fingers. But uh, frankly, I tried it. Uh, my, the first idea was with three. And uh, yeah, like many ideas, it didn't work out. They were banging into each other and I couldn't control them at all. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Tony. That's uh, That was definitely sure. a curiosity of mine. Uh, let me add that, that uh, one of the factors of, drumstick, of, of drumsticks on your fingers is what you wrap around the end. If they were just wood, I found out on that first tour in 86 with Peter, uh, just wood, the, the, the metal of the bass string wins and the, the wood wears out after only the two or three shows. There's no... There's only half a drumstick left. So I had to wrap them in something, and I've tried different, many different wrappings of rubber and cloth and, and fabric, and I'm, I'm still amusing myself. When there's time, usually it's King Crimson rehearsals, we'll rehearse three weeks and just try all of the 
on you, the R and D ideas that we ever might have. <laughs> and that, that's where I try yet another wrapping on the funk fingers. Well, King Crimson certainly seems like the place to try something weird out. It is. It is. You have such an incredible amount of a body of work. And I want to know if you have any preference working with a group of people or doing your solo material. I mean, what is, do you have a favorite or do you like to do both? Good question. Um, you guys are throwing questions at me. I'm not <laughs> used to, so I have to actually think of my, my answer. I, I don't say the answer I said at another interview. Uh, um, he, like a lot of the people I play with, I'm in it for the music. So, so the setting doesn't matter so much. I think uh, if I had a pick, I'm I'm a bit more comfortable being behind the uh, the main artist than I am being the the front guy, the guy in the center stage. Partly, I'm I'm just thinking about it for the first time, but that's partly because you see better when you're a little off to the side or a little in back. When you're the front center guy, really, I want to look. I want to keep an eye on the drummer all the time. I don't need to, but it's, I'm kind of locking with the drummer. Yeah. really hard to do when your back's to him. <laughs> so there's that. And also, uh, if I'm not that person, I don't have the pressure. Maybe that's the wrong word, because I don't mind running the show and being the one that put it together. But but it's a little nicer for me if someone else is doing that, and I'm just uh, playing the bass and, and, and having a sip of water between songs. Well, yeah, it's definitely talks. like... Not, it's a little different of a job when you're when you're not the main guy putting it all together. It is. It is. And and it also let me add that it it's uh, it's a new experience to me to be the main guy. New in mm. that it started in the 1990s, so it isn't new <laughs> the way other people <laughs> think of the word new. But there were many de- there were decades before that when I was the the backup guy and very I'm very experienced and comfortable with that. You talked about playing live and also doing stuff in the studio. Could you kind of talk about the idea of taking tracks that you recorded in the studio and then transferring them live and sort of like, what is your process for that? Um, Is it grueling? Are you allowed to sort of like improvise and change things or sort of how does that all work uh, for you? That's a great question. It it varies, of course, with the band. And and if it's an artist and then a guy who's, or a woman who's in charge, then they have a, a lot to say about that, which might be the same as I feel or might be different. I think the really cool music that, uh, maybe there's exceptions, but a lot of the really good music I play, I have had the chance to play on. The, the Finding the ideal bass part is kind of a process, and it's not done when the record is done. So sometimes, this particularly with King Crimson, that's somewhat with Peter Gabriel, but particularly with King Crimson, uh, kind of on a journey to find that that even elephant talk all these years, and I'm still, uh, I'm still. There'll be the night that I get it right, and I'll be ah, I'm going <laughs> to play it that way from now on. But uh, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, yeah, so that's if if you can think if you can imagine that that makes the touring of those pieces fun because it's challenging, and I'm still really trying to get the part as good as I can. I can also play the same part every night. I think that with someone like Paul Simon, who I toured with a lot, that's, that's more appropriate and it's not, it doesn't suck (laughs) because it's great, (laughs) it's great music and you're, you're part of this great thing that, that comes out and that's fine. It it just isn't that other element of the challenge of, of working out the part. And so I'm, I'm comfortable with both and it varies utterly uh, wildly actually with different, different, uh, bands and different people in charge some bands don't ever want to do a thing the same uh, that reminds me of of bill bruford talking about uh, 
uh, jazz. And he said, jazz player is someone who never plays the same thing once. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. So, um, Anthony mentioned that he's a bass player. I'm a drummer. So the whole thing of drummers and bass players locking in together is, is something that's really ingrained in me. And you're always playing with different artists and with that always different drummers. How long does it take for you and a different drummer to lock in with each other? And you've, you've played with one of my and Anthony's favorite drummers and that is Gavin Harrison. Yeah. Oh my God, he's yeah. Phenomenal. So I'm just kind of curious how you and a new drummer form that, uh, that, that bond, that relationship. Uh, that's a great question and a great subject. I, I don't have an answer to that. Cause I don't have, I don't know. <laughs> I do the same as you do. I walk in the room and, and start playing the music and then we see what happens. And I've had times when, uh, the drummer was musically kicking me in the butt and, 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 prodding me to keep up and to, to do not to keep up in speed but to, to get my act together and I've, I've probably had sometimes when when I felt like the drummer wasn't quite up to keeping the tempo the same in the way that I would have liked to uh, I'm not talking about really great drummers now but but the, there's all kinds of variations uh, some of them work better than others I have been tremendously lucky to play with a wide variety of great drummers gosh really really wide variety and and it's different. The feel is different with each, but I don't really uh, carry a catalog of, of what, what it's like playing with Gavin, what it's as opposed to playing with Steve Gadd, as, a playing, as opposed to playing with Manu Kache. I don't really keep that in my mind. We just start playing and, and I hear, oh yeah, it's that, uh, it's that kind of situation. And, and what if I do this and what if I do that? And, and uh, there, have been, there have been times, um, maybe not a lot, but sometimes that I felt like, especially in a jazz albums that I really wasn't up to doing, to playing as, as precise or as, as fast or in some way that the drummer expected. And that in all those examples, the, the drummer was kind to me and didn't kind of yell at me. Maybe when I was young, they'd yell at me, but the, uh, <laughs> I felt, you know, there've been times where I felt like I'm, I'm not really quite up to par on uh, keeping up with this guy. So following on from that, in the, in the most recent lineup of Crimson, how hard was it to lock in with three separate drummers? Uh, yeah, good point. Uh, three drummers is one of those things. Robert Fripps just told me, or, or, Tony, we're going to reform the band and there's going to be three drummers. And I took a deep breath and I thought, again, I thought, uh, not for the first time, I thought, if someone else was saying this, I would I would take a deep pause and I would say, I'm not sure about this. But my musical respect for Robert's vision is such that uh, back in the 90s when he said, there's this guy, Trey Gunn, who plays the Chapman stick and the two of you together, that'll be really great. And I said, oh, I'm not sure. I, at the very least, each of us is going to have to hold back. Uh, anyway, I did that in the 90s and it was great. And it was great be not because of the idea, but because uh, Trey is so great and and we were pushed to musically come up with things uh, different than we would have before. And likewise, when, when he instructed the three drummers in King Crimson to, to merely reinvent rock drumming and left the rest up to them, uh, uh, <laughs> they did a good job. They did, they did really. And, and the way, when I heard the idea, the way I envisioned musically, well, the way I imagined it would be was that I would have to play a lot less that I would, uh, 
go south uh, musically, that I would maybe make my sound bassier and thumpier and heavier. But of course, I, I didn't do that until we got together rehearse, but that was my plan. It ended up not that way at all. It ended up that the drummers so divided up the parts that were never that there were never uh, two bass drums playing a flam or even playing together. They brilliantly divided it up. So in a sense, I was playing with one widespread drums drummer who was spread physically across the stage. So it was really necessary mm. for me and for them to wear in-ear monitors to not hear a lag between some of the drums and others of the drums. But in, mm. it, and then who knew? In the end, I uh, I kind of gravitated towards uh, more mid-range in my bass sound and uh, and, and tr trying to cut through and actually playing a few more notes than I used to play. I you know, it's all that rehearsal uh, puts to the test the ideas you had before it. And, and uh, uh, hopefully if it works well, then, then you come out with something that's musically valid that's probably different than what you imagined, certainly different than what I imagined. And watching that lineup is just such a pleasure to watch. The and way for me. And for me yeah. behind them. Yeah. Tony, you've worked with everybody, literally. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, is there anybody out there that you would love to work with that you haven't gotten to yet? Uh, Jimi Hendrix? <laughs> a little late. Am I a little late with it? Just a tad. Uh, uh, I think, I think uh, like all of us, when I hear some good music, be it on the radio, be it on the, on the web or live, whoever it is, uh, part of me, who's learning from it. And part of me is just like, she's kind of, I kind of wish I was playing in this, uh, unless it's such a great bass part that, that, uh, I think I'm glad it's not me. Cause that guy, that gal did something that I could never have thought of. Uh, but a lot of people I'd like to play with, you can't do it all. And I, I'm joking somewhat about this because I realize how lucky I am with the people I did get to play with. And, and let me add, because we talked about many drummers, the biggest challenge was when I took it into my fevered brain to write a song, a vocal song, using for lyrics the names of all of the drummers I had ever played with. <laughs> so that was, yeah, that seemed like a good idea. And it, really, it took me a long time. I'm talking a long time. And uh, I, I uh, even even discover, rediscovering the names of, of most all of the drummers I had played with. Uh, uh, and then creating a composition so that is somewhere online uh, where people can hear it because what did i do with that song in the end it was just vocal uh, nothing else but and, and pretty long and a, a lot of names and i thought i did a good job with it and and certainly as regarding drummers that's the by far the biggest challenge i've had working with drummers is how, <laughs> how do i get these names none of which rhyme with each other <laughs> right. uh, yeah so every drummer we mentioned is in that song and, and, that's uh, fantastic yeah Thanks. I sort of coming off of Rob's question and and really not being facetious about this because you have played with so your the body of work is incredible. Uh, do you ever just sit back and think, you know, do you reflect and sort of like blow your own mind about the amount of of music that you have put out in your life and that, you know, that also is still to come? Do you mean just alone, if you heard 50 ways to leave your lover, or like watching the wheels go, you know, starting over, that's amazing. But you have th those, you have thousands more. Do you ever just reflect on that? Um, of course not. 
<laughs> I'm just like everybody on this on this uh, conference. Uh, you know, I don't I don't spend time thinking about what I did a long time ago or last year any more than you guys do. Mm-hmm. I, I I wake up and I get some coffee and work on what I'm working on today. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And when you turn on the radio though and hear something, do you, do you, sometimes isn't it just like, yeah, that's me, or is it just like, eh, that's cool, something I did, I accomplished that, and onward <laughs> yeah. and upward. It, it varies. It, it, yeah, once in a while I'll hear something in the gym or something that I played with, and and yeah, kind of yeah. that's nice. I, I don't have a a standard reaction to it, but it doesn't blow my mind. That's for sure. <laughs> Kind All of right. Well, blows my mind. But. <laughs> oh, thank you. And 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 I I don't mind the being complimented about it. And the time that it comes up is when I'm being interviewed. Of course, when, yeah. when people have kindly researched my past and and remind me, and then it comes up, which is appropriate. And that and people like to know about that. But uh, no, like like all of us, I don't really walk around with that at the front of my mind. Yeah. Most of us on the this show are big, big Bowie fans. And so we've got a we've got a couple of questions about your work with Bowie. And I want to start with uh, just this past week, we had the 10th anniversary of the release of The Next Day, which is an album that you played on. And I'm curious to know, can you describe the atmosphere of that recording? Because it was so tightly secretive. It was such cloak and dagger, you know, situation where he released this album as a complete surprise to the world. No one, I I heard the story from Earl Slick that he went outside the studio one day to smoke a cigarette and Bowie got on to him. He said, if you're out there, people will assume I'm in here recording an album. So can you talk about making the next day? Yeah, it was, uh, kudos to to them, the production and and David for keeping it a secret because it's not easy. I had a history of, of when I worked with John and Yoko in I guess nineteen eighty. Uh, I have told the story before. Uh, uh, they they said the se- the sessions are really secret. Don't tell anybody that you're working at the Hit Factory, which we were. And I lived in New York at the time. And and the day after they the product producers told me that. I got in a taxi and I, I asked them actually to let me off a couple blocks before. It wasn't that I couldn't be seen walking into the hit factory. It was I like to walk a little bit. So, uh, yeah, I said, yeah, let me off at 49th Street instead of 48th Street. And he said, oh, that's that's near where John Lennon is recording. <laughs> <laughs> taxi driver knew. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wasn't even going wow. to the building. And, and, and I, I said, that, wow. Uh, hey, that's interesting. <laughs> where did you, he said, where did you hear? I said, where'd you hear that? He said, I heard it on the radio this morning. Oh no. So, yeah. Yeah. So that was that secret session. So when, when, um, Tony and David, uh, and David Bowie told me that you really can't tell anybody. I was okay. I've done that. That's fine. And I, I did tell my wife, but I didn't tell any friends. And, uh, I, really I wasn't the, but by any means, the main, bass player gail ann dorsey was doing the album and had worked quite a while on it and she was busy i think maybe touring with pink for one week when they were they wanted to do some sessions and that same week uh on the weekend i was to be best man at a wedding of a good friend of mine eric and uh i i had then the dilemma of okay i can work monday through friday but they wanted saturday and sunday also and i I said what am i going to do and and he's a big 
Eric is a big Bowie fan. And I thought, I can't tell him. And I can't, I, I, you know, this is my only chance. I don't even know if I'll end up on the album. It turned out I end up on a few songs, luckily. But the, I thought, I just don't want to miss out on one day of possibly being on, on this. Uh, so I compromised. And I did the Saturday, which meant I couldn't do the, the uh, what do you call it, the rehearsal for the wedding. Mm-hmm. But the Sunday, I, I bowed out of the boy thing and went to the wedding and, and, and never told Eric why. I just said, I can't do it. I just can't come and until a year later, exactly, <laughs> almost literally a year later. Yeah. And, and, and at midnight when I got the, the call that, that the album is out and I said, I called Eric and I said, can I finally tell you why I didn't do that? Oh, anyway, it was it was unusual there was no big deal once we were in the in the studio right but there, there were less uh, assistant engineers than the studio would normally have it was pretty quiet because they were they sent everybody home on vacation instead of having more people that have to keep the secret mm-hmm. and tony i'm wondering you've probably been asked about david bowie a lot but i'm just wondering if you have a david bowie story that no one's heard before that uh, you could tell us Afraid not. I, I was. Uh, I had met him before. Let's see. I had played on an album before, on one song in an album uh, uh, before, and it, it was. It wasn't strange, but that was near Woodstock, where I live, uh, in a, some studio up on a, on a almost a mountain that I hadn't been to before. And even though it's in my area, and uh, when I was called for that, I I knocked on the wrong door, and David came to the door in his underwear. <laughs> And and with that look on his face, like I don't know this person, and you're you're, you know, this is not good. And I was I did have my bass under my arm, but but I was like, oh, this must not be the studio. Uh, so there was that song, and so I had met him years before. I, I wish I could remember the song. I don't remember it, but but uh, yeah, so I knew him. Uh, my sense of that week I worked in the studio with him was, of course, he's a very good guy and very nice to be around and a hard worker we worked hard on these things but i i hadn't realized how how musical he was and how when he was playing the piano it's not, yeah of course he had done these compositions and his voice is his voice but he was really one of the players when he was playing the pieces and i'm not saying that was shocking but i just kind of hadn't known that about him he just kind of really really good musician and a very capable player and uh, one of the guys and and it was a good-natured week, and and I'm I'm afraid that's all that that came out of it uh, for me. And it was I was honored, and and once again in my career, lucky. I was thinking this just could have could have been anybody playing these pieces, and I'm I'm glad to be the one who was invited to come in for a few of them. <laughs> By the way, Gail Ann Dorsey's fantastic. I'm a fan of her playing, and oh, yeah. uh, if it had been different circumstances, I wouldn't want to. Uh, be mm-hmm. there instead of her and for any reason but she was busy and uh that stuff happens in our in our industry yeah. and a She's beautiful a singing voice too yeah darn right my gosh yeah hey i wanted to ask you about working on uh music with laurie anderson and just sort of that process because her brain is not <laughs> wired like a normal brain and her creative process is notoriously um fast-paced in the studio and i'm just kind of wondering what that was like for you to work on strange angels and, and work with her. And Thank you for, for bringing that to mind. Everything you said about her is correct. I don't really have any particular memories of the, that yeah. session, but it was very quick. Like you said, it was very creative, very quick, no messing around. And uh, it went where it went. Yeah. She's, she's an inspiration. 
And that works great for you, though, when it's like you're in and you're out because you get to go get your coffee and stuff. I mean, <laughs> that kind of organization and stuff is probably incredibly rewarding for you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know what I am. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I'm comfortable in any kind of record because I've done a lot of recordings. Uh, I'm comfortable really going very fast and I'm comfortable really taking your time and comfortable going really, really slowly and, and fine tuning. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, these last few days, Peter Gabriel has been sending me some tracks and we've been zooming because what I have is almost there, but not quite what I did in, in England in the studio. And so I'll spend uh, as much because I so enjoy playing the pieces. They're really good pieces. I could spend eight more hours on one of these simple pieces, just really trying to refine every note of the piece and also the sound of the bass and, and moving the damper around a quarter inch here and there. Uh, so I can work at a very slow pace. But yeah, because of my musical training, I usually can, usually, not always, but I usually can figure out the piece pretty quickly. Uh, but I'm happy to work, at, I think, at any pace anybody wants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, 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 let me just tell you one exception, liquid tension experiment. Those guys are so, uh, I've done, what is it, three albums now with, with uh, Jordan Rudis and Mike Portnoy and um, John. Uh, I knew I was going to forget. I knew when I started saying their names, I was going to forget one of them. Petrucci. John, Petru John Petrucci. Yeah, they're, they're virtuosos and they compose so quickly that instead of me being the guy who's a step ahead of everybody in the studio, which has happened sometime in my life, um, I'm lagging way behind with them. So I think in a personal way, it was good for me to to be put in that situation a few times with those guys and, and learn that, uh, hey, I'm not the guy I might have thought I was. In fact, uh, I, I'm constantly saying with them, uh, yeah, I, I can't really learn that riff right now, but I'll figure it out later and I'll overdub it. And after couple albums of that they, they know and then they're, they're very nice and very kind to me i'm kind of like the slow old guy in the corner who's really <laughs> not going to get the piece at all until until uh, later i mean it's not always uh the musicians though that might determine the pace of the recording i mean a producer or an engineer you know engineer kind of situation might also and i so i was i'm just wondering if you have any particular favorite producers you've worked with or you know that you've liked their style and i'm I'm super interested in this is coming as no shock to any of these guys. I'm a fa huge fan of Daniel and and I know he produced. So, um, so just wondering thoughts on that. Yeah. I've worked with a lot of producers and, and I guess there's no standard of what the job of producing a record even is. So some producers I have worked with leave everything to the artist and the musician and are just kind of there and overseeing the engineering, or maybe they are their engineer. And some of them are very hands-on on everything, the arrangement and the music, musical aspect of it. Some of them work with the with the the artist, the singer, songwriter exclusively, and kind of leave the musicians out of it, and then just kind of let the let things fall where they do regarding the musicians. Uh, all kinds of experience with different producers. I don't have offhand a favorite. I, certainly, the way Dan worked with Peter was admirable, and and. Wonderful and not easy because Peter, who produces his himself pretty much since Dan, uh, is really easy to work with, but he's not easy to produce because his, his imagination is going to determine where the music is going to go, not, not some guy saying the way it is. Right. Uh, yeah. So Dan did a great job, and even in a much more concise way, the Robbie Robertson album I did with him was very 
it was excellent, fantastic music. And, and he really was able to, Dan was able to uh, exhibit his talent and, and the many things he can do to bring the music together and to let the musicians do the best job they can. Uh, it was easier. It, it was a relief to see him be able to, to exhibit that when over the years of working in with theater, uh, he just couldn't quite bring things to a, like, all right, everything's ready. Let's do it. This will be the take. He just couldn't quite uh, get it to happen. <laughs> but the end product is all that matters. And, and he did a great job in both cases. Uh, yeah, like I said, I don't, I don't probably have a favorite, fav a bunch of favorite overall producers, but uh, I'm, I'm happy to be in, I'm happy and lucky to be in a, in a uh, record situation where the producer knows what he's doing and, and helps things go along as opposed to uh, bringing in problems. Right. There's one other uh, project that you've worked on that I would love to touch on, and that's you contributed to two Stephen Wilson albums, Incigentes and I think Grace for Drowning. I was curious as to how you ended up working with Stephen and, and what that was like. I'm a huge Stephen Wilson fan wow. as well. So. I don't want to disappoint, but the, the, the story is a very simple one. I, I, I know him and he asked me to play on the tracks and I played on them and I sent them to him. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had better stuff. <laughs> no, that's just as good a story as any, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah well. Tony, you have, a, well, it came out in 2022, a book called Images from Life on the Road. Oh, thank um, you. I forgot. Yes, you do. And you I can do. find it on TonyLevin.com. Um, <laughs> I want to know if you, how does photography rate in, in relation to playing music? I mean, it, is it something that you would like to do equally? Um, and also, do you take the pictures that you take with a specific intent of putting them out? Or do you, is it more just like a fun hobby for you? Because it seems like you've been doing this for years. Your your website has got archives, you know, that go back, you know, many years. Yeah, it's scary, isn't it? Yeah. It's wild. But, uh, it's wild to click on that website. <laughs> thank you for asking about it. I I, I think of myself as primarily a bass, as completely a bass player first and and 90%, uh, not just a musician, but a bass player. And uh, yes, I've been taking pictures on the road as a kind of a, I don't know, it's something creative to do since the 60s, probably. Wow. And and uh, through the years, in the 90s, I, I started a website pretty early before before there was this thing called a blog, a mm -hmm. web blog. And, and I started, <laughs> what is a web blog? Because I, I started a website thinking, oh, people are going to want to hear about my album. That was wrong. And, and once in a while, I put a picture from backstage somewhere and, they th and I got a lot of response from that. And I, I realized, well, here's what people want. They want to see what it's like for us musicians on the road. And, and why don't I put those pictures up? And let me add, that wasn't easy in those days for, for I don't want to get too technical, but it, the, I think 220 pixels wide was the widest I could put up. Yeah. And, and if, if I was in Europe taking pictures, I would have to get them developed and then uh, ship them to the webmaster in Florida and he would have to scan them. Oh God. It, was wow. it, it took weeks to get the picture up, but I did it then. And, and of course, as things got digital and faster, I was like, uh, yeah, I was ready for that. Uh, so I've taken a lot of pictures and learning that, that people at concerts especially love to see a picture of the audience. They love to share. Uh, it's one of the great things about the web. It enabled us musicians to share with the audience, if they're able to connect with us online, 
how inspiring the audience is for us on the stage. We know it and we feel yeah. it and then they kind of know it in a way, but you see the picture of an excited audience uh, and you, you know it, you, you can, you can envy the musicians who are facing that because it's something very special. It's an energy that's really special. That's a part of what makes what we do uh, so satisfying. So that's what I did in the nineties. I made, then made the biggest mistake of my photographic career in that I'd switched to digital too early. So from, from about, I don't know what, 95 till 2005, I have these these dreadful small pictures that are, are, are unusable. And then I got back, and then I went back to using my old film camera and then uh, digital got good enough for me anyway to, to use it. And uh, I think there are uh, interesting parallels now with digital photography, uh, Photoshop, Photoshop, interesting parallels between my bass playing because when I see... A potential picture i always have the camera with me on the road and it's the same guys and it's some, sometimes it's the same set every night so the situation doesn't change a whole lot and if it does change frankly i'm not the fastest uh, professional photographer at having the right lens and the right exposure and all that stuff right uh but uh if the situation is right uh i look at the the situation with an eye towards not what it will look like through the camera, but what I can make it look like with processing in the same way as when I mentioned earlier, I hear a song and maybe I envision, uh, I envision, I musically imagine a big fat bass sound with some kind of edge and, or fuzz or something like that. Well, with my pedals and my basses, I'm able to come up with that. With just the pure bass, I could only come up with one or two pure bass sounds. So in the same way, uh, you know, I'll see a guy leaning against the wall, maybe drinking a cup of coffee, and I'll think, well, if, if I you know, specifically turn this into a black and white and, and increase the contrast and, and, and darken it a whole lot so you only see the cup of coffee in him, uh, that's the picture I want to capture. And, and mm. so to me, I don't know why I'm even going into this, but it's interesting, no, it's, it's, interesting it's, parallel it's, between no. that and the way I, I conceive mm-hmm. of a base part. Now, let, let me add, it's talking about a long answer to a short question. <laughs> let me add that uh, the lockdown, the, the 2020, mm-hmm. 2021, uh, difficult year for all of you and all and for me and all of us musicians. Uh, what what kind of saved the year for me was the idea of, okay, these tens of thousands of pictures I have through the years that people haven't seen, the ones that weren't up on my website, I could devote this whole year to trying to put it to find the best ones yeah. to mix the, the triX, the film ones with the digital ones and get, get a look for them. And, and that's the book that you mentioned was the result of that. And it pretty much took me from June until December, but I had nothing else that I could do. Right. I could write songs. I wrote for some songs, but mostly I spent, you know, the, the daylight hours working on that. And it was a, it was a joy and a great satisfaction to release that not, not necessarily for sales, but just to release the pictures into the world so that so that people who are interested can see them. I was going to I would like to ask about another one of your books, um, and this goes back a little farther. This is back to 1998. You you did a book called Beyond the Bass Clef, okay. which was sort of a career anecdote kind of thing. And I'm just wondering if you've had any thoughts of a, either expanding that or writing a second volume of it. Thank you. Uh, thoughts. Yes. <laughs> it's on the list, but it's pretty far <laughs> down. I, I, right. I do a lot of writing. I, I take classes in writing and I love to write. 
and and I've I've released also a poetry book since then, and uh, there will be other stuff in the future. But uh, typically, when I uh, when I consider should I do a refined version or version two of something I did before, or should should I spend my time and energy on something brand new? Right. Usually, I choose the brand new thing. That makes not sense. always, but but usually. So there's a King Crimson uh, Crimson Chronicles Volume One. Uh, quite a good book of, of the 80s of King Crimson. I had planned volume two and three, but then uh, there was road photos, a, a different album, and there was, uh, sorry, a different book, and then there was uh, images from a life on the road. So I can't guarantee what I'll do, but uh, yeah, yeah, there will, I will I certainly do writing most every day, and, and I'll find some outlet for it. Thank you for asking about that. Of course. Can I ask one thing about way going way back? Because uh, you mentioned Steve Gadd, and yeah, I, I did want to talk about how. Well, I've I've read, and you can confirm if he real he was the one to introduce you to like jazz and rock because you were focused when you were very young. You were focused on classical m- mainly, and you played stand up bass and uh, tuba. Boy, I, I get embarrassed that people know so much about me. Yeah. <laughs> I also and, know what cereal you had for breakfast. No, I'm just <laughs> things that I had forgotten to take. <laughs> but I haven't forgotten Steve, that's for sure. Uh, yes, I was a classical musician, really intensely uh, immersed in it as a, as a high school student. And I went to a classical music school, the Eastman School in Rochester, where how lucky was I? The, there was a drummer named Steve Gadd who was already a great drummer. And out of the 18 or 20 bass players in school, not one of them wanted to do a gig with him because they were classical players. And I was mainly a classical player, but like, okay, I'll do the gig. And and he very kindly and quietly sort of mentored me because I was a classical guy trying to play jazz and I wasn't very good at it. And uh, my, my, my sense of playing on the beat was it's just... <laughs> I laugh now. It's just like play right in the middle of where the beat is because that's what <laughs> classical is. There is nothing else. And and jazz where you want to play a little on top of the beat, I just I just couldn't get it for a while. But he was very patient with me. And then when we got out of school, by then we were playing together a lot, four six hours a day, every day. I don't mean in school. I mean outside of school. And then uh, he did a brief stint in the army, and then he joined me in New York. And I had the great joy of telling. Uh, I was at that time kind of success, a little successful in the studio scene in New York and telling the New Yorkers, there's this really good drummer coming to town. His name is Steve Gadd. You're going to like playing with him. And they were like, oh, he's not from New York. Where's he from? Rochester. Ah. <laughs> and uh, that changed really quickly as soon as they heard him play. So that was a, a fun year when I introduced, I didn't introduce, but when I had a hand in introducing New York City to Steve's playing. And uh, we, we still play together once in a while. And it's, it's a great joy. That's great. Hey. Tony, I wanted to ask you about playing with Buddy Rich mm-hmm. and how did that, one, how was the experience? And two, what did you take away from working with him that sort of propelled your career? Uh, wow. Where do we start these stories? Everybody has, everyone, I think everyone has Buddy Rich stories, even if they never played with him. And never, <laughs> there are so many. Uh, here's the the quirky and good thing, and maybe of some use to people, to musicians who are, are, starting out and and have a rough time i was in rochester pretty ensconced playing with steve and pretty ensconced in a music scene and i got the call to go on the road with buddy rich band which is the kind of band was the kind of band that that stayed on the road all the time so it wasn't like six weeks or something you just go on the road so so i i accepted the, the work the job 
And I got rid of my apartment and uh, I kept my car, but we said goodbye to everybody. And I kind of went off to be a jazz and I, and I to be a jazz player and, and be a jazz touring guy. <laughs> and, uh, by the way, Buddy was known at, at that time for, for not being gentle and kind with his bandmates, but for being a kind of rough guy to work with. But, but I didn't mind. That, uh, and, and so I went to Boston for the first gig, which is called reading the book over the shoulder of the previous bass player. And uh, I was greeted by the band manager in the afternoon when I arrived at Revere Beach, at this club. And he said, Buddy's changed his mind. And he talked the bass player into staying. So... Oh long pause and i had a long pause and i had a pretty dreadful uh, evening that evening because i had said goodbye to rochester in every way including everything i had and uh, i'm from boston so i went home to my parents my folks uh, house and i thought i'm not going to stay here what if this is enough of a failure already and so the next day i got in my car and i went to new york which i might never have done otherwise and and it took a while but i, I ended up being pretty successful musically in new york and then uh, that's enough of a story on its own. But a, a year later, Buddy's band came to town. And he had no bass player. And they asked uh, if I could. And not, then now I was a somewhat established jazz bass player in New York. Oh, this is guy Tony Levin. Maybe he can do a week in a club and then a couple nights playing uh, in the studio. Sorry, a couple of days in the studio making an album. The Roar of 74, it would have been. That was the name of the album. And... Uh, yeah, that was that was fun. Buddy had no idea that I had been in the band for like a nanosecond. Oh my gosh, and, he didn't and, remember. And, no, he didn't know. He didn't <laughs> care. He didn't care about the, what bass player was there. But he liked the, uh, uh, you know, he was he was pushing wow. me. He was pushing me musically, and I was pushing back musically. I was young and I was very aggressive, and uh, I can hear that now when I hear the the tracks. I can hear that he's he's giving it some, and I'm like, nope, uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to lay down for that. I'm going to push ahead yeah. even more than you are. And, and it, was a, it was good. So he liked it. And uh, so I, there were two days in the studio. First day in the studio, a couple hours into the session, Buddy got mad at the whole band and fired the entire band, the big band and me. <laughs> and I, I said to the other guys, I'm, I'm packing up. And I said, I, I never had this happen in New York. I've done a lot of sessions. This is, and they said, oh, don't worry. They said, the manager will call us tomorrow morning, rehire us, and we'll do the album in one day, which is exactly what happened. <laughs> right. Wow. <laughs> so there's some of my my experience with Buddy Rich. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. That was yeah. <laughs> it, it was it was a learning experience. Yeah. Glad and, and it's we, easier for you now. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and and by the way, musically, yeah, okay, he was he was pretty aged at that time well probably younger yeah. than i am now but 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 he was kicking it he, he was playing great it was a very uh you know a kick in the pants a wonderful jazz experience and a great uh, an honor to have played with him and yeah. and to have survived it musically and and personally and and uh yeah. felt good about it so it was, it was quite an experience for me because when you listen to that record you hear a back and forth with him that you don't hear in his other a lot of his other records which is really interesting yeah, well, also it was Fender bass. He uh, in that style usually it was upright, but he wanted me to. He wanted kind of to go in a rock way, but it wasn't rock at all. And and I also, yeah, I, I had a a different sound and approach. I can hear that right away. A different sound and approach than I have had ever since. I, I would have trouble playing that way now. Actually, maybe not that many years ago, there was a a Buddy Rich alumni band uh, tour of Japan that I did 
just to see what it was like with different drummers, a few different drummers sharing the chair. And, and I realized in practicing for that, that I, I don't, I don't play that way anymore. I can, but I, I don't, I don't play way up on top of the time anymore. Uh, but it was, it was kind of fun in that situation to do it. Thanks for remembering about that stuff. I would like to mention that, that, uh, along with the Peter Gabriel tour starting in, uh, mid-May, I think May 18th, I'm going to release uh, what we call a, a collection or an edition of Peter Gabriel prints of some photos I've taken. Uh, I think I picked five of my favorite pictures of, of Peter, and, and those are going to be released. They're out. I guess the webpage is up now. It's called Tony11Prints.com is the webpage. And uh, I'm excited about that. It's nice to have, it's wonderful to do my music, but it's nice to have once in a while some new uh, photographic things come out or, or books or things like that. So this is, this is uh, something that I've been working on lately That's and great. Uh, it's ready That's to awesome. go. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tony. This was so much fun. Yeah, this thank has you. been amazing. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. We're not worthy. Oh. Let me say to all of you, good luck with your music. We all need that. Yeah. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thank you so much. All right, uh, Tony. Well, you take care and have a great rest of your evening. And have a great tour. And we, oh, we're man. so stoked. I hope the tour is Thank amazing. You. Yeah, have a great Thank time. You. Safe I'll, travels. I'll wave to you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> take care. Thank you so much again. Bye, this Tony. has been amazing. Take care. Ah, oh, holy shit, oh my guys. God. Holy shit. <laughs> that was bonkers. Oh, <laughs> and... Dude, it's so great to meet people that you like and they're not jerks. He was so fucking nah, cool. I knew he was nice yeah. because I knew it was he was nice anyway. But yeah, like he's so yeah. awesome. Like So Steph, you're you're friends with his wife. Right. right? I worked with to with um Andy. And actually that's how I met Tony because he was on Virgin, right? So like that's how mm, Andy yeah. met Tony also. Got oh, it. Nice. Got it. Yeah. Whew. Oh my gosh. All right. So let's take a quick break here and, and we'll be settle right down. <laughs> right. Let me let's yeah, myself. I kind of can't believe that happened. Right. So we'll be we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back with our picks of the week. So don't go anywhere. Howdy! Listen up. I am talking. Now, the question of the hour is who's got a Doctor Who podcast? Answer. We do. Next question. Who's listening to it? Answer. You are. If you're sitting up there in your silly little spaceship and you've got any plans to listen to a Doctor Who podcast, just remember who's standing in your way. And then, dear the smart thing, listen to Earth Station Who right here on the ESO Network. All right. We are back. We're going to talk about our picks of the week. Who wants to kick us off? I do. Oh, great. Go ahead. I usually never have a pick of the week, but it's going to be, it's going to, you know, coincide with our, who we just interviewed. And it is that song playing for time. Yeah. It's called also the, with the in parentheses dark side mix, but it's Peter Gabriel's third and new single. Mm -hmm. It's my favorite one that I've uh, heard so far. And it, okay. Bob and I were listening to it today and it's so moving. The lyrics are so moving and, and just like very reflective. And there's a line, it's very, it's in the beginning of the song when he says something like what we call 
our planet. And it's just like, mm. it just makes me, I started crying the first time I heard the song. Let's, let's just put it that way. That's how much it, I, it moved me, but his voice sounds crazy amazing on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, um, it's like raw and honest. There's a really super cool loop going through it there. The orchestration is beautiful. It kicks in super hard at the end. Mm-hmm. And I just love it. So that is what I've been listening. And I'm not, when I'm, I listened to that like dozens of times in the last <laughs> few days. That's fantastic. All right. Who wants to go next? I feel like I've got quite a lot because sure it's you been do. <laughs> a while since I've been on the show. So I'm going to try and do this in summary, uh, some of which may have already been mentioned by others on other episodes. But, um, you know, just thinking it's been basically six weeks since I was on doing Picks of the Week with you guys. Yeah. Uh, been listening to a lot of White Lies. Um, they're phenomenal, phenomenal post-punk band uh, from London. Really, really enjoying them. Um, their track, Am I Really Going to Die, has the most insane bass line uh, I've heard in a while on a on a pop song or, or, or a rock song or an indie track, whatever you want to call it. Uh, which I feel is very appropriate when we've just interviewed one of the world's best bass players. Right. Um, Some other new songs that have deserved shout-outs, and I can actually more or less tell on my Spotify when I was last on. Um, So, since then, Slipknot with Bone Church, not heavy, kind of, you know, dreamy, psychedelic Slipknot, which is a bit odd, but works strangely well. Sleep Token who are one of the uh, up-and-comers in the metal scene with a track called The Summoning, which I can only describe as uh, Deftones meets Bastille meets Funk. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. I like that. That sounds good. Peter Gabriel has released two new songs since I was last on, so I'd like to give a shout-out to the other one, which was The Court, which I really, really liked. So good. And I know my boy Rob has already mentioned this, but uh, also Sparks with The Girl Is Crying In Her Latte. Actually, actually, Rob did not mention that because Rob wasn't on the show either when Steffi and I talked about it. I love that for you, too. We love it. it. So good. Yes, it is. And and Alan said he was going to learn the Kate Blanchett dance moves. And then when Sparks comes, he's going to full on do that in the audience. (laughs) Nice. I actually think maybe we should record our own version for YouTube where maybe (laughs) either either me or Rob or me and Steph or Steph and Rob can be the the male brothers and Alan can be Kate Blanchett. I love it. Yes, let's do it. I want to be so viral. I want to be. Ron, only because I want to like toss that paper towel, like give it a good toss. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then one last shout out. I've been re-watching my way through the show New Girl. And uh, in one episode, a song called I Always Knew by the Vaccines plays. Yes. And that has just been relentlessly going around in my head. Oh, There's yeah. something wonderfully 60s about it. And I think it came out oh, in 2010. Yeah. Um, so really been loving that and it's just been going round and round and, and round and round that that first album so that's yeah. th- those are that's my extremely long list of picks of the week and i'll try that's, not to leave it six weeks next time so that you have don't. a shorter list that was that was a great list of stuff though mm-hmm. uh, it okay, kind of rob. goes all over the place <laughs> yeah yeah okay rob so um i saw a film um there it's making the rounds and uh i'm pretty excited about it because i and one of these weird 
people that likes older rock and roll. Um, the kids just don't. But uh, I Am Everything, which is the documentary about Little Richard, is just, first of all, as a documentary about music, it's amazing. But second, it's Little Richard. And the amount of things that you learn about Little Richard and just how much his career and his music and his style got co-opted mm-hmm. in when he when he broke um like the amount of money that he lost for good golly miss molly because other like pat boone made more money off good golly miss molly than little richard did for example <laughs> right it's it's everything you want in a movie and it's really interesting and um yeah so go see that it's making the rounds also a uh, band from oakland california there's this really cool music scene going on in san francisco and, and oakland right now of like sort of a it's a combination of like shoegaze and oasis rock and jangle rock and um like c86 stuff but there's a band called nothing natural they have an ep out and it's called and like double n and it's pretty amazing so look for that um two cuts that came out this week there's been you know where this is the time when we get singles and not albums so there's a ton of like single stuff that's that's dropping yeah it has been Apparently ages uh, since there was a new Chemical Brothers single, but they have uh, a new one called No Reason. Oh, really? And I am very excited to have them back because, Ooh. you know, I think they're different than anybody else that was doing that style of music when it came around. Oh, yeah. I love them. And mm. they're um, they're amazing. And this one is called No Reason. It's out. It's great. Um, it's a little different than some of the last ones. They did a, a – the last track they put out was right during the pandemic, and, man, it was amazing. So this one – is good too so it's good to have those guys back and what they you know they do electronic music differently than everybody else like them and underworld are kind of just different than everybody else and and they're pretty great and along those lines uh somebody else i love is allison goldfrapp and uh, she has a brand new sing a brand new single out called so hard so hot and it's pretty great it's fantastic oh my gosh um i haven't heard that that name in a long time yeah, and it's interesting that she's using her real name and not Goldfrap anymore, yeah. which yeah. I think might be a label. Um, and mm. also M83, who are from France, um, have released uh, Fantasy. So if you kind of like that sort of atmospheric, kind of like washed out kind of kind of thing, um, look for that. There's also a really cool new single with Hot Chip and Brian Eno um, that is out right now that uh, people should check out as well. Uh, Brian Eno, they, they put out Freak Out now. They have a, a brand new EP coming out with Brian Eno on it. And um, I'm completely blanking on the name now. So never mind. Um, but that's okay. that's kind of what's up my alley. Listen, just listen to tons of music. And man, whatever music you listen to, find a documentary and watch it because this is yeah. this is an amazing time. Well, here's my pick of the week. I ain't got shit. <laughs> I don't I don't think I listened I don't think I listened to much of anything this week cuz I was so uh, even at work like I usually listen to something at work mm-hmm. I, I I work at a library so while I'm shelving books or doing that kind of thing I always listen to something and I just don't think I did anything this week so I got nothing so I'm glad that you all had long lists because nothing on my end I didn't have anything till Wednesday so if that makes you feel oh. better <laughs> <laughs> but there is a number of documentaries that I'm looking forward to watching. So maybe next week I'll have like all kinds of stuff to talk about. Yes. Okay. So we will be back next week and we've had so many amazing guests on recently. And 
it is mm-hmm. totally cuckoo and uh tony levin being sort of the capper on that thing but we've got one more week to go of amazing guests and next week I'm so excited. I've been prepping for this interview for about 45 years. (laughs) We have two of the original members of Heart, bassist Steve Fawson and drummer Michael DeRozier. I'm so excited to talk to them. Can't even believe it. So make sure you join us for that. But before we go, let's tell people who might want to hear more stuff from us, where they might find more stuff from us. Stephanie, take it away. Okay. You can find me on Bandcamp under my name. You can find me on my website, therearebirds.com. You can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music. And you can find me on Instagram at there underscore r underscore birds. And of course, all the streaming platforms everywhere. So, uh, which one do we start with? Okay, so uh, uh, you can find me on needcoffee.com uh, with the Weekend Justice podcast and, and writing things for them. You can also find me on KDHX on Wednesday nights with Juxtaposition. It's 7 to 9 Central. Uh, every show that we have on the station airs, airs uh, and you can rehear them on our archive stream. So if you can't listen on a Wednesday, because as people are wont to do, uh, Wednesday might be take the the llama for a bath day you can listen to the show um sort of however you want to on the streaming system and then also um i have a show on louder than war radio called antics it is uh 6 to 8 p.m greenwich mean time um which is five hours um ahead of north america time whatever zone you're in and you can listen to that online at uh louder than war radio well my other podcast is on hiatus right now so you can find me here and there and I have a couple of other podcasts and I've got some books and I've got some other stuff. So go find all that at cosmiccreative.com. K-O-Z-M-I-C creative.com. Okay. We will be back next week with another phenomenal interview with two of the original members of Heart. So we'll see you again then. Everybody have a great week. Take care. Keep rocking on. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. <laughs>